Welcome back to another episode of Cogno the Podcast, where we explore different approaches to mental and physical health, ultimately helping you navigate well-being. Thank you for all the comments and feedback so far. It's great to hear from you. Please, if you do enjoy the podcast, follow us to be first to know about the latest episodes and help us grow and reach our community. It really makes a big difference. Today, we meet Dr. Obadan Marinetti, who is a leading psychologist and clinical sexologist based here in Singapore. Dr. Obadan has an extensive experience in psychology and mental health, has spoken on a TEDx talk, featured in Tatler, and hosts retreats such as the upcoming Como Journey in Como Shambhala, Bali, as well as the Lensbury Resort in Teddington, London. In the episode, we will discuss Dr. Obadan's journey into psychology, his practice and the OM Wellness Clinic before moving on to specific areas that support healthy relationships, healing, and why his retreats can change perspectives. Welcome, Dr. Obadan. Thank you, Kirsty. Lovely to be here. Thank you so much for coming and joining the Cogno podcast and our community. Dr. Obadan, you are involved with so many wellness initiatives and we'll delve into your insight on relationships to others and ourselves during the podcast. To start, though, could you share a little bit about your background and your life as a child? Sure. I am Italian originally, mm-hmm. was born in Rome 50 years ago. I stayed in the country until I was 24 and I was a very curious child, very active, very involved with nature. I lived outside of Rome, to be precise. So I spent my childhood outdoor enjoying rivers, fields, mountains, the sea. And uh, 25, 26 years ago, I had the opportunity to relocate abroad, where my journey completely changed and took a different, took a different route, which eventually led me to Singapore and led me to psychology. I remember as a child being very curious and uh, uh, often pondering why people said or did certain things. And this curiosity never left me. And it was uh, not until I moved to the UK that I had the opportunity to sign up with a psychology degree, uh, which eventually led me down the path where I am today. And that consolidated my curiosity with the skills and tools to do the work that I do as a clinical sexologist, a relationship therapist, and a a wellness expert. And as a child, what were your ambitions? What did you expect to want to be when you grew up? It started uh, with wanting to be a truck driver. Amazing. Uh, uh, I was uh, fascinated by the idea that truck drivers were free to travel all the time, and I was very much interested in travel. It then changed to uh, um, architect. Uh, I've always been fascinated by construction sites and the complexity of everything that happens on site. It then moved to astronaut. And eventually from astronaut, it moved to uh, uh, researching astrophysics. My first studies in Italy uh, were in physics at university. But then I turned out I wasn't as number-minded as I am people and letter-minded. So that never materialized. So there's definitely a bit of sense of adventure from a young age then and wanting to see something from a bigger picture. A great sense of adventure indeed. That's incredible. And after you left the astrophysics, how did your career start? I uh, started my career in the army. Um, At the time, there was uh, still mandatory military service in Italy, Mm -hmm. uh, but I had an opportunity to sign up for a 
uh, an officer program, which I completed. So for a few years, I was an officer in the paratroopers regiment of the Italian army. And from there, uh, I eventually moved out of the country after uh, graduating from the service. Uh, my first job was in IT. Uh, I started uh, basically doing uh, support uh, for desktop and networks. And it is at that time that I rediscovered the opportunity to study and went back to university to read psychology. Interesting. It must have always existed slightly at the back of your mind, that interest in the mind. Um, you're now a leading expert in the world of relationships. Were there any pivotal moments from childhood or adolescence where your relationships have played a role in your adulthood, looking back on it, perhaps? Everything that I experienced in childhood, both in terms of my personal and academic life, if you may, influenced my relationships, both friendships and eventually intimate relationships. Did you say that you were always curious about the mind and aware of people's behaviours? Are there any distinct memories of being curious about a specific behaviour? For some reason, the school playground comes to mind. I think it's the place where I did my, most of my observations. So you've briefly mentioned that your academic journey into psychology began in London. Um, how was the navigating occupational and organizational psychology from the army and a role in IT? <laughs> my journey has been an unpredictable one, but one informed by my staying open to the opportunities that emerged, while at the same time keeping an eye on how I was evolving. You see, we're constantly surrounded by opportunities of all kinds. The difference is whether we see them or not. And whether we see them or not depends on what we are open to within ourselves. Because of my curiosity from an early age, I've always been attuned to the things that I'm interested in and that I'm looking for, whether needs or wants. And it, it, I, rec I recognized later in life that that curiosity is also what made it possible to recognize the turning points that emerged in my life, where from the army I moved to IT, where from IT I moved to psychology. Um, they weren't designed, they happened, so to speak. What was designed was my choice to recognize them and follow through with them, leaving behind somewhat a well-rehearsed chapter, chapter of my career and accepted and I was ready to gamble in a new domain. Was there anything in particular that you remember about those turning points that persuaded you to leave that, you know, the, the comfort of what you knew and really push you on into that new space of psychology? Yes. There's this gnawing feeling, if that's the right word, that I recognize and recognized when I arrived at the end of those chapters. Okay. Um, and it's the marriage between that feeling and the sense of excitement that one feels when they recognize something new that calls for them. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, all of the transition I made in, in, in my career um, were somewhat hazardous. I never really planned for the next step. In most occasions, actually, I left things behind without having anything ready to move into. But somehow the way things were shaping up was guiding the way and here I am today with a journey that I feel satisfied with. Mm -hmm. 
also somehow that a journey that's fit into place despite there not being any plan or not being any structure perhaps moving from one to the other. After the psychology degree and master's, from my, what I understand almost 10 years later, you then went on to obtain a doctorate in human sexuality. What drove that specific and very precise niche? One word again, curiosity. Let's tap the into events, the curiosity. <laughs> the events that led to that curiosity being awakened were partly personal, partly professional. Personal because at some point in our life, we all uh, encounter some situations that can stimulate a desire to understand a little more. Mm -hmm. And because of my curiosity, when that desire emerges in me, it tends to lead to a deep research and study. And in this occasion, the personal study turned eventually into an academic pursuit, given the interest uh, I discovered in the subject. Professional, because when I recognized that this doctorate gave me the opportunity to uh, step out of corporate and set up a, a service uh, on my own, uh, I recognized that in Singapore, there was very little offering at the time, about nine years ago now, uh, around uh, sexual health and sexual therapy. And there was only one other qualified sexologist. So I decided to complete the program and use that as an opportunity to set up the clinic. And your relationships prior to the education side of sexology, was there any defining relationship that contributed to that final decision to go and study? The types of relationships that I was part of with my partners was one source of curiosity uh, in the natural progression of the way relationships evolve mm -hmm. and the things that one is curious about and learns as they grow. But I also remember definitely the types of conversations with friends. So mm -hmm. relationships uh, as a, a theme in some of our conversations and the challenges that people shared with me and that I shared with them, all concurrently stimulating this curiosity to explore this world more. And what's interesting is that we often don't realize how little we know. And the moment we start scratching the surface of a topic, a theme or a situation, the more we look, the more there is to look for. And so it opened up a whole new world of possibilities and, and excitement, really. What if you were to summarize what that practice means to someone that has never heard the term sexology or sexologist before, how would you do that for the cognitive listeners? Sure. Uh, sexology is the study of, a study of human sexuality in an holistic sense. And clinical sexology is the application of that into clinical practice, usually using a framework that we refer to as biopsychosocial. And the idea there being the exploration of sexual thoughts, behaviors, social norms from all possible angles. The idea behind this uh, philosophy and approach is that the human being doesn't exist in a vacuum as a, an organic entity on its own. It's part of a, an ecosystem, both as connected to others, but also within themselves. Thank you for that summary. And I want to briefly introduce your company, OM Wellness. 
but also your direct practice as psychotherapist. What are some of the core learnings for finding balance in a relationship while also maintaining a relationship to oneself? First and foremost is the relationship with oneself. It is my belief that we are of greatest value and service to our loved ones and our community when we are operating from a place of alignment, centeredness, and and fulfillment. When we are, on the other hand, operating from a place of stress uh, or disconnection from our uh, identity and our potential, uh, usually we're not as uh, uh, powerful, impactful, and successful in serving others. And so to me, a successful intimate relationship but not only an intimate relationship, also a professional relationship or a friendship. Successful relationships in general begin with being at peace with who we are and showing up into the world in a congruent, aligned manner. Do you feel that often people lack that awareness of what's going on inside of them as having an impact on what's going out externally? And that acceptance that it might be that you have to look inward is quite a hard thing to understand. You see, most of us, regardless of age or geography, have received little to no training, education, instruction on the skills of uh, self-awareness, introspection, but also of relating and communicating and negotiating effectively. Not only, but most of us, regardless of age and geography, have also been raised predominantly in an externalized manner, meaning very seldom uh, we get asked by family or the education system to, to focus and pay attention to who we are, what innate talents we might have. It is more often the case in my experience that we are raised focusing on external demands and expectations the byproduct of the lack of education and these externally focused uh, efforts mean that as adults, we very often, number one, have forgotten who we are and what we need. And number two, that we have not developed the necessary skills for that self-awareness. And so to answer your question directly, it is my experience that the large majority of us lack the ability and skills to have that self-awareness that is necessary to develop deeply. I'm very interested to ask you about that of two things, really. One of how you think that people can overcome that in society, which is obviously quite a big question, but also how you think that relationships and self-awareness has changed through digitalization, use of social media, and how that's really impacted as everything you've just explained. Two gigantic topics yes. there. There's uh, a big challenge ahead of us to try and redress the balance of that gap. Number one, because the way we are designed and organized as a society, we still favor certain uh, externally referenced uh, success measures, uh, which very often are stereotypical in nature and not always aligned to who we are. An example of which, in my opinion, is the way most education systems are structured, where to this day, still 
favor uh, pushing students in a uh, standard direction without necessarily creating the customizations necessary to develop each and in, each and every individual talent. Now, this on its own is a, an enormous task for any government to 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 tackle, and I know that some are doing somewhat better than others. But creating an education system that does more to awaken early on in childhood the potential that exists in each and every one of us, while at the same time, of course, maintaining a standard curriculum for the basic foundations necessary, would be, in my opinion, a way of helping one or two generations from now uh, the shift into a more balanced life where we can continue to uh, subscribe an account for external needs while at the same time doing so in alignment with with ourselves. The second um, element for me that plays a big role is family and parents in particular. But similar to my comment earlier about self-awareness, very few parents have received sufficient knowledge, education, training as to what um, uh, current positive practices of parenting look like and therefore appreciate it's also a big challenge to tackle. But I believe parents and parenting skills uh, have, are a big opportunity to help society develop into a more balanced and uh, holistic, uh, holistic way. It almost seems like if you're not learning a self-awareness from the people raising you, you're going to lose quite a lot of sense of self and self-identity. I'd say that with every generation, I, I believe there's more um, awareness, uh, not so much detachment growing, because uh, if anything, thanks to the uh, arrival of the internet, information has become so readily available that things today in my generation, your generation, are known that our parents, my parents, our, my grandparents uh, could not have dreamt in a million years. And while knowledge isn't sufficient to create a paradigm shift in the way in which we create the alignment I am speaking of, it has certainly opened up a lot of a lot of dialogue and in many occasions especially with the younger generation i see um has also increased their level of awareness and understanding of certain themes and in some occasions of themselves but you see to link it to your digital question it also poses a risk because the readily available uh, information on the internet uh, can also very easily be misconstrued in the hands of an untrained mind or, or a misinformed audience. And so I do also see sometimes attachment to certain themes and ideas and concepts that people are readily influenced by, especially if they become viral for one reason or another, but that aren't necessarily fully understood or easily applicable uh, for the people who, who, who share them. So we're in a very delicate um, time of, of our history, I would say, because the available information creates a platform for an, an incredible transformation, but I think it needs to be guided mm -hmm. 
I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it and actually not seeing it as a detachment, but the fact that it's access to all these different resources. But I think what's interesting is to consider how there can be access to the resources that is constructive, that it's helpful dialogue and people are getting help or support if they need it from a reliable source, which is sort of what um, you know, Cogno's foundation is, is that there are so many people doing amazing things out there, but how people access that and gather the correct information to suit them can be difficult. We will come back to sexology and relationships a bit later, but I wanted to also explore the foundations of mental and physical health playing a coexisting role in well-being. What does the combination of psychology, mental and emotional wellness, as well as natural processes mean to you? Everything. Everything in pursuit of uh, a balanced, uh, fulfilling and satisfying life, both at an individual level, but I believe also at a collective nature, uh, at a collective level. There's mounting evidence from the research in the last decade that the mind-body connection is a lot clearer and a lot stronger and uh, bidirectionally so that we have ever thought than we have ever thought. And so in uh, creating uh, new health-related interventions today, including in a psychotherapy practice where in theory we are mostly looking at mental and emotional health, I believe it's important as much as possible to integrate the body, to integrate nature and community in order to provide uh, the support that most clients require to heal, grow or learn uh, on their journey. Personally, I found the marriage between mind, body and nature uh, a life savior, literally. When you did have that self-discovery of the mind and body connection and that helping you to pull you out of a dark period of time, did studying psychology impact that? Following what turned out to be a very traumatic uh, divorce, uh, I found myself uh, at the brink of suicide, as I mentioned earlier. And uh, uh, at some point, I realized that uh, I needed to turn the corner. And the way I started was to just introduce daily routines, very simple things, some breath work. Uh, at the time, I was already involved with uh, daily ice baths, so I continued the practice of that, uh, changing the way I was eating, changing the way I was sleeping. How did you address finding that routine and introducing new things when you are coming out of a deep trauma and or deep sadness what helped you to be able to overcome and restart helping yourself it was not a choice obviously there is an element of choice in the way i decided to implement the skills i knew but it comes to that point where something clicks inside and you realize that even if it doesn't feel comfortable, you still have to do this thing because it's the right thing to do. It was through experience mm -hmm. that I engaged in the things I knew. And then as a consequence of that, discovering that I was actually getting better. And at the end of that journey, uh, we are at the end of 2017 now, um, I realized that the thoughts that I was having 
had effectively all but disappeared. Um, I had lost a lot of weight. I was feeling stronger than I had before. I was sleeping well. I was eating clean. And it made me realize that I had, unbeknown to my conscious mind, come up with a way to help myself recover. It wasn't a, a, a solitary uh, uh, exercise. I uh, also included in there psychotherapy, and by which I mean as a client, and uh, very importantly also staying connected to really good friends with whom I could share what was happening and, and gain their support. So there was no conscious awareness of a plan. It was more choosing to intuitively apply what I knew that then led to the realization that I had ultimately worked through a plan that had helped me come out the other end feeling good about myself. Subconsciously having the tools within you without needing to... And indeed, and, and that's where the psychology helped mm. because having at least intellectual academic knowledge of some of the things that can be done, I was... Uh, clearly in an in advantage to most people who don't have that knowledge and I could tap into that resource and from it create mini routines or strategies to uh, keep myself uh, healing. So it's always amazing to hear a story where the combination of psychology, mental and emotional support has played such an integral part of your life and that's something that you're able to now share with other people. You've mentioned in your journey there that you had exposure to certain multifaceted therapies like psychotherapy, but also ice bath, breath work. How did those two go together and what other practices played an important role in that building of routine? There's many techniques today that um, marry breath work, ice bath and other techniques. Um, I learned the particular type of breath work originally through the Wim Hof method, for which I'm a qualified instructor now. Um, but I later added uh, other practices. I also qualified as an oxygen, oxygen advantage instructor. And eventually I developed my own little protocols of breath work. Um, depending on the discipline you follow, uh, they marry breath work and ice baths or they don't. Uh, I originally practiced with the two combined and later learned to do uh, either separately without necessarily uh, combining them into a protocol. Um, the benefits of uh, uh, combining those techniques and others, which I'll share in a second, was ultimately tapping into both my body and my mind concurrently and therefore each feeding the other in a process of growing healing and repair that accelerated my my recovery the other things i included were a regular yoga practice uh, i included some strength training i included as much time as possible outdoor and in nature ideally and the psychotherapy and staying connected to the community what i realized at the end of that journey was that the privilege of being uh, an instructor in some of these techniques, uh, a trained psychologist and someone who has been connected to nature basically for my entire life, was a combination that many people who suffer with anxiety, depression, anxieties of various kind, um, don't have access to. 
And that is the reason why I decided to bring them together into a protocol and a program, uh, which is today offered under the um, wellness brand to help people who have similar challenges learn the various techniques and then adapt and adopt the ones that they feel most comfortable within their own life. I'm just going to steer the conversation slightly here. We've spoken about ice baths quite a few times on the podcast, but I was wondering if you could share a little bit about the science behind it and the benefits. There's um, a lot of evidence uh, following the popularization of ice baths by uh, Wim Hof and his method um, around the benefits of uh, ice baths. Uh, many universities and medical establishments have now uh, studied it. And some of the most uh, evident uh, benefits revolve around cardiovascular function, uh, the immune response, and uh, psychological benefits. We have touched on the transformative retreats, and putting all of this together really does sound like a strong foundation. The retreat is basically a, a process of psychological transformation. It's aimed at um, people who are already thriving but wanting an extra edge and somehow don't necessarily know where to find it or how to unlock it. But it's also for people who are struggling at some level and presenting with a challenge either in a professional or a personal setting who want to specifically um, tackle it and address it. And in the retreat, we go through a series of psychological processes facilitated by physical experiences that ultimately create these transformations and these unlocking with the aim eventually that of breaking through the limiting beliefs that keep us trapped in a narrative that often is at the base of why we can't move to the next level of our, of our potential. Uh, we do some level of sharing in terms of knowledge and concepts, but we keep the language to plain English and we try and stay away from technicalities so that what participants ultimately experience is a dialogue and conversation on topics that they recognize within themselves or others, coupled with a series of physical experiences that are accessible to everybody, but without really understanding why or how the transformation is actually really happening. And that's a wonderful experience to witness. Now, you've mentioned there that the retreat really can be for such a wide range of people and whether that's someone that's thriving or whether someone's having a difficult time. And regardless of that, it's an opportunity for participants of the retreat to reconnect to themselves and to others, as well as perhaps find purpose. If someone was uncertain about whether or not the retreat was suitable for them, what would your kind of answer to that be? At a practical level, um, we offer a 15 minutes consultation for people who are interested in participating in the retreat. It's free of charge. It can be booked on our website at uh, omwellness.co. 
We'll link it in the episode notes as well. Thank you for that. Some of the limitations that we have in place, you know, as I mentioned earlier, both the ice bath, but the breath work as well uh, can be very intense experiences. And there are some health condi conditions that are not suitable for such uh, activities. So the website also outlines what those limitations are. And finally, a structure of, of, of the program. So that would be a second uh, uh, source of information. And the third, we regularly write uh, content, blogs, articles, uh, specific around specific themes of the program, specific challenges that people have brought to the program as a way of providing more insight as to the nature of the questions people come to the program and the retreat with and the type of uh, uh, answers that might uh, come from it. Of course, we can't go into the details of what happens on the retreat. That is saved for the experience, I'm sure. But what someone might expect from the three days prior to attending? Sure. First, some of the tools. The retreat um, is designed to allow an individual to bring their specific question to the program and for that question to remain private. While it's an activity that happens in groups, uh, it is very much an individual journey of transformation. And so one of the tools that we use to achieve that is a lot of self-reflection and a form of journaling. Other tools that we use include breath work, movement, ice baths. We have visualizations and meditations. We have um, seminar-like knowledge sharing. Uh, we have some other uh, practical activities that uh, uh, are conducted in groups. And then we have discussion, discussion segments. That's one answer to your question. Uh, more broadly, we sequence the transformation in, in, three, in three segments. The assumption we make is that everyone is somewhat feeling stuck with their chosen question because there's a set of limiting beliefs they carry that often they are not aware of that needs to be uncovered. And so day one is dedicated to identifying what those limiting beliefs are. Day two goes very deep. It's our most intense and it's our longest day of practice. And it can be tiring, but it's usually a, a, a very um cathartic day mm. is where we turn the corner having identified what those negative beliefs are we go through a series of processes and protocols to help participants to uh, break through those limiting beliefs and replace them with a positive set and then day three is where we consolidate that transformation and we not only reinforce the presence of the positive belief, but we close the program by creating a commitment plan that people can then take away from the program to implement in, in, in real life. An integral part of the way we design the program is that we have two more touch points after the retreat ends, one month from the end of the retreat and once again three months from the end of the retreat where we meet with the cohort and we do uh, additional processes and, and experiences to consolidate 
the the commitment plan and and uh, the the journey that the participant has developed uh, at the retreat itself. Sounds like an amazing three days and a real sense of purpose and reconnection. As mentioned previously, you do have an upcoming retreat at the Como Shambhala Estate in Bali, as well as the Lensbury Resort in Teddington. These are of two different environments, but what what would you say about having the retreats in very different climates, but also settings? Is it a similar expectation from each retreat? That's a wonderful question. It's a wonderful question because the setting is indeed a very important component of how we design the program. Mm-hmm. Um, whether we realize it or not, the environment we are surrounded by has a very strong impact on our moment-by-moment experience. And so while Bali and London have two very different climates, the experiences uh, for the purposes of the program will be very similar because the choice of location that we um, have for the retreat uh, has to meet certain basic criteria. And fundamental among all of them is that it has to provide a certain access and connection to nature. I must say the Como Shambhala Estate is an extremely magical place. Thank you. And I will link all of the information about both of the retreats to the podcast. Please do get in touch as well if you have any other questions on that. I want to now just ask a few questions about self-discovery and personal growth and the advice that you would give for people that don't necessarily have access to a retreat, but have those feelings of being stuck. Cogno aims to help our listeners navigate well-being. And Dr. Ovdan, I'm wondering what your advice would be for people who are struggling with their self-discovery and how you can encourage yourself to reflect and reconnect and revive. We could do a full podcast just on this very question. The advice I would give to people who are looking to rediscover themselves and assuming they don't have access to a retreat or resources of that kind is to begin by being curious. We are with ourselves at all times. And at all times, we know what we need. Part of the problem is we don't pay attention to it. And I like to equate this to the dashboard on a car, uh, which is equipped with icons and dials and sounds, each designed to alert us to moment by moment, what's happening with the system, in this case, a car. We have dashboards installed on us everywhere. The pain in the neck that doesn't seem to go away, Mm -hmm. the disturbances in sleep that uh, have emerged uh, recently, uh, the negative thoughts and moods that keep emerging, the feedback that others might be giving us perhaps consistently about certain behaviors or certain observations, these are all clues as to what's happening with us. But very often, caught by the madness of the busy lives we we lead, we either 
don't pay attention at all or when we notice and pay attention, discard the signals as irrelevant because we are busy with the children, the deadline for the project, the big presentation or whatever it might be the case. So the first answer I would give is be curious by listening to your body and your mind and your emotions in a very attentive and purposeful way. When we pay attention, we realize the clues are always there. That would be step one. Step two, uh, where possible, is to engage with people who know us. Whether it is a sibling, a parent, friends, colleagues, we behave in the world in ways that often are unknown to us. We call them blind spots. If we have a diary that perhaps we kept when we were young, rereading a diary, any source of information that is external to us and credible enough to get a sense and be curious with about what did I dream of? What comments did I make? What did I look for? What did I like? What did I, what did I dislike? To me, that would be a, a second valid step in, 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 in developing a sense of self. And the third one, I appreciate that uh, the level and accessibility to the service is different around the world, but where possible, connecting with a, a reputable professional in, in, in psychology or psychotherapy or counseling or social work that can support a more structured, formal journey of self-discovery would also be a very important uh, step. Those three, I think, would be a, a great start for anybody to to use. I think that's great advice. And I really enjoyed your analogy there of the dashboard. And I was just wondering if I could ask you a question on that, because this isn't necessarily a frequent reason why people may ignore the signs that do pop up in that intuition and in their gut. But what would be your advice to someone who is actively ignoring something that's lighting up on the dashboard to follow the analogy or something is ticking in their mind or body or whatever it is, but something's preventing them from addressing it head on and making the change. For someone who's actively ignoring the signals in their body that something needs um, attention, I would say beware. Because depending on the nature of these signals, you might be dealing with something quite simple, sometimes something quite severe. I encourage clients who are actively often looking to ignore the signals on their dashboard to at least ponder on what the consequences of that behavior might be. Like with the car, if I wait too long because I'm late for a meeting to pay attention to the little petrol pump icon blinking on my dashboard, I might end up not making the meeting altogether. If I ignore that red icon that I've never even seen and don't recognize, but I know it's red, I know it means danger, uh, my car might break down completely and forever. Um, so the, 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 the silly analogy there to illustrate that the body is speaking for a reason and we can and maybe sometimes should momentarily ignore if there's a need, an impending need to attend to something. But the prolonged ignoring of the uh, signals may have very, very severe consequences. 
for ourselves or others. So please, yes, go ahead and ignore if you really must, but at least ponder on the long-term consequences it might have. That's a really good analogy and quite a lot to learn from that. I feel like you could relate that to different um, different situations. Dr. Obadan, thank you so much for coming on the Cogno podcast. I'm extremely grateful for you sharing your journey, your insight, and also sharing a bit about the re upcoming retreats. Um, thank you also to Como for putting us in contact. Um, I've been very grateful for the opportunity to interview you and have you join the Cogno community. The last thing that I would like to do, which we do with all our guests, is a quick fire round of questions. So first thing that comes into your head and we'll just start. So, Dr. Overdan, favorite color? Blue. Favorite cuisine? Italian. A country you'd like to visit? Cambodia. The best book you've read? Hmm, there's so many of those. The Power of Now. Your go-to karaoke song? All of me. Coffee or matcha? Coffee. Yoga or an ice bath? Oh, ice bath. And are you an early morning person or a late night person? Early morning. Do you prefer reading or listening to a podcast? Reading. What's the best upcoming retreat in Bali? <laughs> I heard of this amazing retreat taking place on the 17th of December, Como Shambhala. I think a company called Om Wellness is offering it. You might want to check it out. I'll check it out and link it in the podcast. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Kirsty. It's been a pleasure.